whatever else is needed. I was busy sitting down the front. The song we were singing and then Pastor made some comments about the three young Hebrew boys, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah and I preached on that last Sunday night that they wouldn't bow and they wouldn't budge and they wouldn't burn. That's the kind of people we need to stand up for God today, to stand strong, to be strong in the Lord, not in the power of our own might, but in the might of God. If you open your Bible this morning and turn to Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7, please. Second Chronicles and chapter 7. Let's stand together, shall we, for the reading of God's Word. Probably one of the most the well-known, best-known passages concerning the subject of revival in Second Chronicles chapter 7. Let me begin for our reading at verse 12 of chapter 7 of Second Chronicles. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. Thus saith the Lord, speaking of the Solomon's temple. Verse 13, if I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear, heal their land. Let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, Lord, I love you and I thank you that you hear the cry of your children when we pray to you from a clean heart. Your word has warned us that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. And Lord, we know that it's a great need of the reviving of your children, your people this day. But the requirements of revival oft times have not been met. We sing of being strong when we are strong in our own strength and what we need to be is confessedly and consciously and continually weak for when we are weak then we are strong. Lord, I pray that we might enjoy the abiding presence and work of the Spirit of God in our midst this morning. pray that you would be pleased to meet with us and bless our time in the word and that you would speak with clarity and with power and passion to the heart of each and every person here today. For the children of God, may this be a time of refreshing as we would say with the psalmist and the cry of our soul, wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee. And Father, for that one that visits with us today that does not know Christ or that one who is doubting who is perhaps driven to and fro of the whims of the world and the flesh, confused and wondering where they really stand with God, that you would speak peace and graciously minister to their heart that they might stand strong and confident in the finished work of our Saviour Jesus Christ this day. Meet with us now and bless our time, we pray in Christ's name with thanksgiving. Amen. Please be seated. I've never had this many bodyguards before, so something must be going to happen. Uh, good to see uh, 
brother and sister Anger this morning. I haven't seen them for quite some time. I sometimes feel that maybe Brother Gill's avoiding me. Uh, he borrowed two dollars off me back in 1987, <laughs> and I've I've forgiven the debt, so it's okay. But uh, pray for him. Pray for the ministry in Burma, in Myanmar. Uh, be very conscious in your praying of the need for this camp because the great need in Burma is not missions but children of God knowing Christ as Saviour, ministering in their own, their, their own people. They will have a far more fruitful ministry uh, in Burma and Myanmar than uh, any uh, foreign intruder could ever possibly have. So pray much for that ministry. And uh, my brother's looking a little on the frail side so pray for him and for his health needs, if you would, please. I have asked people to continue praying for Brother Francois Surrette, uh, very mindful of his uh, very poor condition, uh, still in hospital, uh, still needing three and more than three weeks after surgery, uh, still needing to have a bowel movement, which is causing great concern. Uh, if he hasn't had a bowel movement by tomorrow, they're going to have to do surgery again to work out the problem. So please be in prayer for Francois, Carolyn and the family. And uh, thank you for praying for us. It's always a blessing to be here at Southland. Uh, I know many people had prayed for my uh, need of surgery last year and God graciously undertook for us and I'm still having some back problems but I think that's part of being old and cranky rather than being frail. So uh, please continue praying. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll be at Lighthouse with St. Gus and the people there and uh, look forward to having some of the young people visit and then later on we'll be uh, at Nowra with Brother Shellabear and then uh, we have a camp ministry in Gladstone and then ministries in uh, family camp in West Australia and then some six weeks in South Africa in Johannesburg, Clerkdorp and in Cape Town. Wonderful churches there, strong churches with a real zeal for the Lord uh, dangerous place to visit sometimes, but as the songwriter said, anywhere with Jesus I can safely go. Safest place in the world to be is in the will of God. Of course, that doesn't mean you're bulletproof. I often tell people, you know, I've still got heart disease and uh, if I fall down, if I cark it here, and you know, just imagine if I collapsed on the floor this morning, think of it this way. You want to revive me, flip a coin and the loser has to give me mouth to mouth, okay? <laughs> I, I can live with that. But if I have to go home to glory, I'm, I'm, I'm really upset about that too. Second Chronicles, the definition of revival. People think revival is a big boom in religion where lots of people will suddenly get their heart right with God or make confessions of faith. We have this happening uh, supposedly in Australia with Franklin Graham at the moment. Uh, following in, in the footsteps of his father, uh, uh, very much a, an ecclesiastic type thing where we've got multitudes of mixed people uh, coming together. Hopefully, I'm praying they are preaching uh, the true gospel of Christ and that the counsellors, those that respond to the word of God, would be given godly counsel rather than human counsel. Back in the late 80s, there was a very large uh, outreach around the east coast of Australia. Uh, some friends of mine were asked to, from a Baptist Union church to be involved in the counselling. The instructions they were given were very simply these, that if people respond 
when an invitation from the preaching is given, when the people respond, the first question you ask is this. Now, if I give an invitation and someone comes forward, if people respond, the first question I ask is, why have you come? And I'm expecting a person to say, I don't know if I'm saved. I know my, my heart's not right with God. I've got problems, whatever it is. They were told the first question they were to ask is, what church do you belong to? And if the person said, I'm Catholic, they were then to be directed over to brother or sister or whatever he was, uh, Reverend Puddleduck or Father Fluffyhead, and then they would get told, you know, you go and pray 50 Hail Marys and half a dozen Our Fathers and give us a 100 bucks and a bottle of Bundaberg rum and you're all right with God. And uh, that is not evangelism. That's, that's what Peter's talking about, the false prophets and the commercialization marketing of, under the name of God for godless men. And so real revival is when God's people, when God's people are challenged with renewed sense of responsibility and privilege and then others are brought to confess their faith the first time. It, it is a wonderful privilege it is an honour, it is a joy to be a child of God. And you notice here when God is speaking to Solomon, he, he enunciates for him very clearly that he will hear. But notice before you get there that there is this, uh, this matter of, uh, what can we say, uh, possibilities. The possibilities are these. He says, you know, uh, my people... We've got to begin with a very simple question here. Are you, are you one of God's people? Are you a child of God? Are you born again of the Spirit of God? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you come as a lost, guilty, hell-deserving sinner, guilty in the eyes of God, and you know it in your heart, and you are believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again? The simplicity of the scripture is that he was delivered for our offences and raised again for our justification. And therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are multitudes of people in churches today and dare say even in this church who are on borrowed time. Borrowed time. You're under the sound of the gospel again this morning and you heard it and you know it but you've never believed it. You've given a nod from the head, you've prayed a prayer, but never from the heart. Never from the heart have you turned from sin to the Saviour. Never from the heart have you cried out to God and thrown yourself upon His mercy. You have, just like the Pharisees, stood there and you're hiding behind all of the things you do. This is part of your you do. This is what you do to somehow or other uh, impart blessing or claim uh, some uh, uh, privilege from God as if God is in your debt and you're tipping him a day at a time. But you've never come and trusted Christ and Christ alone as your own personal saviour. And the possibilities, the possibilities that God gives here, he says here, if I shut up heaven that there be no rain, we're talking here about dryness. Let me ask you, you know, the, the Bible speaks of the man who loves God and is walking with God, who is in the grace and the mercy of God, washed in the blood, that he is like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season and his leaf also shall not wither. 
In Isaiah, they were told that when God sent the revival among the people of Israel, that they would be like a well-watered garden. And yet in many places, in many churches, and truly in the hearts and lives of many of God's people, there is this dreaded dryness. There is this constant drought of spiritual, uh, of spiritual longing. There is no hunger for the word of God. There's no desire for fellowship. There's no desire to service. There's no uh, initiating from the heart of a desire to sacrifice for God. There is no desire like David when he cried and said, renew a right spirit in me, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit. He was a man of God who was far from God, who tried in his folly and his sin to cover his tracks, and yet the thing that he had done displeased the Lord. David knew it and God knew it. And it wouldn't be long until everybody knew it and we all know it now. It's there in Psalm 51. But that's his repentance. That's his returning to God. That's his crying to God with a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. Have you come? Because you're dry. Is there a dryness or is there spiritual vitality this morning? You said this morning in the Sunday school, a faith that doesn't change you probably won't save you. Are you dry? Are you tired of just limping from one Sunday to the next with no visible sign of Christ in your life? Are you weary and worn of going through the pretense of being a child of God when honestly in your own heart you don't know? You have genuine doubts. You have genuine fears. There is sincerous spiritual trembling in your soul at the thought of stepping out into eternity because you really don't know because you've played the game and you've been dry for so long. And there is not even a bud. There's not even a green flicker anywhere of spiritual life. What's wrong? What's wrong with me? You haven't had an answer to prayer for years. What's wrong with me? You have no desire to read the word of God. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? When the choir's singing or when the congregation's singing, your eyes run glibly over the words of the book written by godly men and women who loved Christ and wanted others to fall in love the same as they did. And, and it means nothing to you. And you read the accounts of the crucifixion of Christ and not a tear in your eye, not a sniffle of your nose. It, nothing about the, the sufferings of Christ and the whipping and the nails and the beating and the crown of thorns and the thrusting of it. None of these things move you. You feel like you're a dead man. Is it possible because you are? Dryness. What about devoured? If I shut up heaven that there be no round, if I, if I command the locusts to devour the land, my, we could talk about this nationally, couldn't we? What a mess. Do we have a political problem? We have an election this year. Do we have a political problem? Let me tell you something, folks. Many of you already know this. Hustler's Law says all politicians are the same. Stick them all in a bag, hit it with a stick, you'll get the right one every time. And I advise big stick, big, big stick. Is it... Uh, we don't have a political problem. We don't have an environmental problem. We don't have a social media problem. We don't have a moral problem. We have a spiritual diseasing. We are being devoured by the lusts of our own flesh. Everything we ever plan to do is based on what we want rather than what God wants. And is it any wonder, he says, 
you know, the locusts devour the land. Or if I send pestilence or diseasing among my people, what a wicked land we are. What a diseased land we are. But let's not speak of a land, let's speak of a people. Because that's whom he's talking about. By way of application here out of the Old Testament into the day in which we live, we're not speaking of Israel and we're not speaking of a land. We're not talking about a nation. We're talking about people. We're talking about you and me. That we are the ones suffering from the dryness. We are the ones who are being consumed. We are the ones who are diseased and by it all, disabled. But notice these are the ifs. The ifs, and if we're talking about ifs, we're talking about possibilities. Possibilities. And that's why I say, is, is, this, is this a description of you, my friend? Is this a description of me? I mean, you, 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 you're not vital just because you're in the choir or in the orchestra. You're not vital because you sit up on the stage. You're not vital because you stand and you bow your head in prayer. You're vital because you know you have the living Christ there in the heart. You know that you're saved. You know that you're a child of God. You know that you're an ambassador for Christ. You know why you're here. You know why you, how you got here. You know why you're here. You know where you're going. And you should know what you're meant to be doing while you're on the way there. But do you? Or are you among the disabled and the distracted? We spoke last night with the young adults of those who are distracted puttering away, doing everything they want to do. That's what the children of Israel were doing. And God graciously granted them seasons of reviving and refreshing. That's why the psalmist said, Wilt thou not revive thy people again? Again? What do you mean again? Well, we've been through all this before. I mean, you look at, um, I've been preparing a series on God, on, on camping with God, the wilderness wanderings. 40-plus funerals a day for 40 years. And then when you get to the end of their sojourning in the wilderness, God's only a, a couple of hundred short from what he started with. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, lesson number one I learned from, God doesn't need me. He wants me. He wants you to be walking close with him, to be vital for him, to be vocal for him. But he doesn't need you. He doesn't need any of us. I'm strongly of the opinion that if God changed his mind and said everybody goes to hell, he'd be justly so because we'd all be getting exactly what we deserve. All these people running around saying they want justice. I don't want justice, I want mercy. And I got mercy when I got Christ. A friend of mine commented recently that he was happy I'd found God. He's a good friend. But he's wrong. I didn't find God. God found me. And he found me on the trash heap of life. 23 years old, a ruined man. Not merely marred and scarred, but bitter and broken. A shattered shell of a man trying to fill his life with whatever he could get his miserable grubby paws on. And what I needed was not something, but someone. And I never knew that till I heard the preaching of the gospel of Christ. Praise God for his salvation. So the possibilities are very real. But notice here also the problems. And the first problem as I began with is my people. 
my people. The problem, the need of revival today, the problem begins with the people of God. And notice some of these problems that he enunciates for us here. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. You say, what's the problem there? Pride. Pride. We look around at our numbers, we look around at our properties, our possessions, we look at the lifestyle we have, we look at the, uh, at the, um, the prosperity that we enjoy and we're okay. We're doing fine. And that's the problem. We're not doing fine. Our prosperity is destroying us. We are like the man in Psalm 73. Our eyes stand out with fatness. We have more than the heart could wish. We are under the influence of affluence. We are very rapidly living out the Laodicean years, my friend, where we are rich and increased with goods and we really think we have need of nothing. And we do not know, as they did not know in Revelation 3, that they were miserable miserable, naked, poor, blind. That's a problem for my people. I hear people that you know talk about their salvation and sometimes the testimony almost sounds like a braggathon about them rather than a boasting in Christ. We need to be bragging on Jesus Christ, not on ourselves. We have here My people, proud. My wife always gets upset when I say it, but I'll say it because she's not here. I'll get it in the neck when I get home. I got saved in an independent Baptist church under the preaching of the gospel. I went to an independent Baptist Bible college. I started a little independent Baptist church and I preach in independent Baptist fundamental churches around Australia and other places around the planet. But I'll tell you this, I thank God the Lord Jesus Christ got me before the Baptists ever did. Nobody's going to heaven for being a Baptist. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received not. But as many as received him, (coughs) to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Thank God for the simplicity of salvation that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from there, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. These are the people of God. And the reality is we have no reason to be proud. We have no reason to be, to be stiff-necked and, and as of an uncircumcised heart. We ought to be the most humble people on the planet because everything we have is at the hand of God. We ought to have the attitude of a Job that says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. How humiliating this was for Job to be constantly the persistent accusations of his friends. His friends who came from afar to sit down and mourn with him and pray with him and weep with him and then they became the prosecutors accusing him of having done some evil deed. And poor Job says, I didn't do it. I'm not guilty. I haven't done this thing. Oh, you read through the book of Job and they threw all manner of accusation and through it all he has this constant pain of a, of a body that's been battered and diseased. And he's lost so much, his personal loss. 
In a day, he lost all of his children. And all he had left was his wife. And her suggestion was just curse God and die. Get out of here. And these friends, poking, prodding, berating, continually. And you know the most difficult thing in Job's trial? The prolonged silence. Longing and crying after God, and God never said a word until the end of the book. Then Job thought he was going to have a discussion with God. Job said, you know, I'll lay out my case. I'll set things in order before him. I just need to have a little talk with God. God said, you don't need a little talk, you need to have a long listen. You're the creature, I'm the creator, God said. My people need to realise the humility of it all is we are a broken, sinful, wicked people in our natural state. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. There is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As it is written, none righteous, no, not one. But we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. There in the book of Isaiah, you understand Isaiah says the very best we do. Not the worst we do, but our righteousnesses, the very best deeds we can ever commit. In the sight of a holy God, these deeds that are done from the hearts and the hands and the feet of men trying to somehow please and earn God are as filthy rags. And our iniquities like the wind have carried us away. We are a sin-driven people. And then God in his mercy reaches down through the cross of Jesus Christ and provides for us this wonderful salvation. Is it any wonder, he would say, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves? There will be no revival without the humbling. Without the broken, repentant heart, there will be no personal revival, no church revival. Sin in the house of God hinders the work of God. Will you humble yourself today? Would you humble yourself and acknowledge God's greatness and our weakness? God's gloriousness, His majesty, our sinfulness, how quickly we fall away, how quickly we go astray, how easily we fall prey to the flesh. It says, if my people which shall call by my name shall humble themselves and pray. Here's problem number two is the prayerlessness. The scripture tells us that men ought always to pray and not to faint. In fact, one of the shortest verses in the Bible says, pray without ceasing. Look for a moment here in, in uh, 1 Samuel. Israel wanted a king and Samuel rebuked them for their wicked desire. But God in his grace gave them a king and despite the failures of Saul, God still gave them the best that was available in the land. But in his, in his rebuke to the people in 1 Samuel in chapter 12, in verse 23, Samuel says, Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Are you one of these people who's quit praying? 
You've prayed for a time. You've prayed for a season. You prayed for a day. You prayed for a week. You prayed for a month. You prayed for... But you quit. It's a sin to cease praying. There ought to be an attitude of the heart and the spirit of man continually before God to be praying, to be seeking the face of God, to be crying out to God for direction, asking God to give us the right desires of the heart. If I have the wrong desires of the heart, I noticed on the bottom of a, one of the songs or the signs that went up this morning about that our uh, decisions will affect or determine the direction of our life. We need to add to that that your desires, your desires of your heart will affect the decisions before you get to the directions. I used to ask people at camp ministry, young people, I'd say, what do you want to do? If you tell me what you really want in life, I'll tell you where you'll be in 10 years' time. Because your desires, they will drive you. One ship drives east, one ship drives west by the self-same winds that blow. It's the set of the sails and not the gales which tell us the way to go. And if our heart is not right with God, if our heart is not fixed trusting the Lord, we are easy prey. We need to be a praying people. We need to be crying out to God continually to direct our steps, to keep our feet. David said in Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he hath heard my prayer. Is he hearing you? Are you praying? What are you praying for? What is your prayer? Dear Lord, bless me and my wife, us two, my two boys, us four, no more. Amen. Is your prayer, dear God, give me, get me, let me? It's all about me. Do you, are you burdened for the lost? Are you concerned for your brothers and sisters in Christ? As I said to the young people last night, how many of you through the course of this week prayed for your pastor? I think there are a lot of pastors around the world who get unprayed for. And people come along on Sunday morning or Sunday night or on Wednesday night or whatever, expecting somehow or other this vessel of God is going to minister to a need in their life, but they've never prayed for him. Well, you might as well go to the local church bazaar and buy a bag out of a lucky dip. That's how much hope you've got of getting something from God. If you're not a praying person, this is the mercies of God that he has not put forth his hand to smite you rather than to bless you. God's people have got to be a praying people. God's people have got to be a humble people, not a proud people. I notice here another problem. He says, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. What's that? Priorities. Priorities. God first, make the rest of your list after that. God is first, always first, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Christ is present in the lives of all of his children. He is prominent in the lives of some of his children. He is preeminent in the lives of very few of his children. Now you ask yourself honestly this morning, what are my priorities? Am I seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Have I done as the Colossians were exhorted of the Apostle Paul? Have I set my affection on things above and not on things on the earth? 
Have I died to my own desires, my own self, my own whims, my own will, and am I totally yielded to God? What's your priority? Most young people today finish high school and go off to university to do what? Well, I've got to make a living without ever living. And it's not long before they look back over their lives at the age of 50 and realise, well, I've just spent 30 years, I've got the wife, I've got the kids, I've got the car, I've got the house. That's a bit iffy these days, but you know what I mean. And I've got everything I want, but my priorities are not God-focused. And I'm wondering why I have these times when I sit alone at night and the wife's asleep and the kids are all in bed and I have this horrible, sinking, nagging feeling, why is my life so empty? Why do I feel like I'm a one-man band marching up a dead-end street? Why is it that, you know, I, I don't have answers to prayer? I don't have any blessing in my life. Well, the wife's a blessing. The kids are at praise God. But the guy next door's a drunkard and he's got a wife and kids too. And the fellow that just got sent to prison for 10 years for child molesting, he's got a wife and kids too. So maybe having a wife and having kids isn't really a great telltale sign of where you are spiritually. The real discovery is what's in my heart. What am I longing for? What am I living for? What am I spending all of my energies for? And why do I feel so empty inside? Because I'm seeking for self. My priority in life is me. My priority in life is my happy little family. My priority in life is having a healthy bank balance. My priority in life is knowing that when the bills come, there will always be money there to pay it. And I've never stepped out to really make a sacrifice for God really in any area of my life, and I don't need to because I've got it all together. Except in these quiet times when I sit and I hear this still, small voice. And all of a sudden, I look at my life and I know that one day as a child of God, I'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ and everything I have will be nothing but ashes. It's now wood, hay and stubble. There'll be no bucket of diamonds. There'll be no precious jewels. There'll be no gold. There'll be no silver. There'll be nothing. I have spent my life. I am a saved soul with a lost life. This morning when I was talking to the bear, that's my wife, by the way, Mama Bear. It's not bad, it's good. She said, why is it today that people think God should put everything on their plate and then they'll go? Why is it that young people today say, you know, well, if God does this, then I'll do this, when it should be the other way around. I will do this and then God will do. You notice, what, you notice here that God puts the responsibility on man to be right with God. He says, I'll do this, but you've got to do this. When we stepped out into ministry, we had support that allowed us $60 a week. 60 bucks a week. And for 60 bucks a week, I finished Bible school, we loaded up our car and our trailer, 
stuffed all of our bedding into a freezer somebody gave to us up in Orbost and we drove all the way up to North Queensland excited to be in the ministry. Going to go start a church. Got a little Bible study group up there waiting. We're so excited. Going to go serve the Lord. Praise God. First house we rented was only 30 bucks a week. Oh, we're rich. Next house we rented is 40 bucks a week, but we're still rich. Another house we rented is 50 bucks a week. Thinking, yeah, a little bit tight now. Oh, I was so excited though. Oh, I, 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 I was just trusting Christ and trusting God in Christ that, that he's going to meet my needs, he's promised. And I get up and I preach to this little congregation my first Sunday. And I get up and I preach on the foundation of the church, godly families. Preach the gospel, preach about husbands, love your wives, wives, love your husbands. And when the service is over, this woman walks straight past me, just whoosh, takes my wife by the hand and says, I feel very sorry for you being married to an MCP. My wife doesn't come from those roots. This lady storms out the door with her whipped husband and children walking behind. No fishtail handshakes from them today. And, the, and my darling wife looks at me and says, what's an MCP? <coughs> I said, honey, it's a male chauvinist pig. And she still was blank. She didn't think she married a pig. A little on the porky side, but certainly not a pig. She said, what does that mean? I said, it means we're in a lot of trouble. And yet God blessed. Praise God, that church still is going today. But not because of anything I did. It's all about priorities. 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 If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. What are your priorities? Are you seeking first the things of God? Is Christ first in your life? Or are you ready to set out on your ambitious college degree? You're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or you're going to be a real estate agent or a pothole pointer or a digger or whatever you're going to do, but you're going to do it all because it's what you want to do. Favourite question when I ask young people, what are you going to do with your life? And the, you know, What's your plan? When you're, oh, I'm going to do this. And now is that what you want to do or is that what God wants you to do? Because wanting what God wants is what it's all about, folks. That's priorities. Seek my face and then notice and turn from their wicked ways. Turn from their wicked ways. Perversion. Perversion. This goes right along with the priorities. As soon as my priority in life is me doing what I want to do, I am a perverse person. I am in direct opposition to God. I'm living with this strange expectation that somehow or other, this God who loves me and gave himself for me, is going to continue to watch over me while I continue to throw the ashes of my life back in his face. Now that's perverse. There's something seriously wrong with the heart and the mind that thinks that God will sit back and watch. 
And that somewhere along the line, the truth is God will intervene. Somewhere along the line, God will give us a tap on the shoulder. He may use a preacher. He may use a friend. He may use a pastor. He may use an occasion, an incident, an event in our lives to give us a little slap, a little tap, a little poke, a little prod to make us consider our ways. And to make us sit down and ask, am I really really being what God wants me to be? Or uh, will I just continue on my wicked way? Sounds strange, doesn't it? We don't think that, you know, we never really stop to think that the things we do, when we're doing it for self, when we're doing it for the praise of others, when we're doing it for the pleasure of the people and the populace, we never ever stop to think. We just think, well, yeah, it's one of them things. But God says it's wicked. It's wicked. It's an evil thing. It's offensive to him. And the things that offend God call upon God to defend his honour. Because here is a child of God who is not living as a child of God. Who is a child of God who is perverse and offensive to God. Now, if we talk of perversion, we could talk of purity. In 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, this is the, one of few passages in the Bible where you will read of God taking vengeance on his own people. In verse 3 of chapter 4, he says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honour. The simple statement here in 1 Timothy is that you have a vessel that is either a vessel of honour or of dishonour. You are pure or you are perverse. You're a clean vessel or you're a dirty vessel. And the wonderful thing is when we think about being vessels of God, we get to do the choosing. We choose. Now, we don't have have any flowers here. No, you get some flowers here. You get a pot. You get a vase. And you, as the owner of the vase, you get to decide what gets put in it. My grandmother had this beautiful, very beautiful, ornate-looking vase. And when you'd walk in through the double doors of her big old house down on Church Street in my hometown, the first thing you would see in this room was on the, on the hearth, over the man, on the mantelpiece over the hearth, was this beautiful, great big English pot. Beautiful, beautiful vessel. And many times you'd go there and have a magnificent spray of flowers. And it just caught your attention. But even when it wasn't uh, displaying flowers, just this vase with, with the gold trim on it and the beautiful painting on it, it was just stunning and it would catch your attention. You used to think, well, whatever happened to that vase? My grandmother made a decision to make that vase beautiful. But when she moved out of her home and sold her property, it was bought by the local hotel the Royal Exchange, who turned it into a drive-in bottle shop and car park. And I wonder when they took possession of the house, if they bulldozed it, maybe 
they took that vase and said, look at this. Someone said, ah, it's just a vase. And just for a joke, even though it's very beautiful, let's leave it over here by the barroom door and people can use it for a spittoon. Stale shots, stale beer. Got a head cold, in you go. The vase doesn't get a say in what goes in it. And therein the illustration ends. We do. Children of God, vessels of honour or dishonour in the house of God. You decide what goes in this vessel. We know from this scripture here, we already know what God desires. Purity. He goes on to say in verse 5, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. And the truth is, a child of God has no excuse for a godless life. That's why Paul said to the Ephesians, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. If you know Christ, you are not ignorant. You might be stupid sometimes, but you ain't ignorant. You're enlightened. You'll live like a child of God. You'll have a hunger for the things of God. And your priorities and your purpose and your direction in life ought to echo a purity in Christ. Why? Because every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. I need to tell you how the world loves to tear down the purity of Jesus Christ. They want to make out that he was gay, that he was queer, that he was a faggot and all this other filth. And that's mocking God. But don't worry, God's not mocked. God will always have the last word and the last laugh. And the purity, the beauty, the holiness of the Son of God oftentimes stands in stark contrast to those that name the name of Christ. And so Paul says here, you don't do this. Why? He said, for God hath not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. He says that no man, in verse 6, go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger. God an avenger on his own people? Well, this is what James is saying when he says, you know, you adulterers and adulterers, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The war is over. The battle may still be getting fought in some areas, but it's been won. Christ is victorious over sin, hell, death and the grave. And in him, so are we. And yet down here, we might be like old Jacob and think that our days are few and evil. But pure. Not perverse. Not defiled. No longer at war with God. No longer an enemy of God. I'm a child of God. You're a child of God. If you know Jesus Christ, your Savior, you're a child of God. Live like it. If you can't live for him, don't confess him. Don't mock God by saying one thing and living another. That's why these three young men, the courage of them, to all the multitude, they would take the goal of these men. How dare they not bow? Oh, but old Nebuchadnezzar, he'll sort them out. Don't you worry about that. When you hear the music, boys, you better do the old musical chairs and fall down real quick. 
And if not, this same hour you'll be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Is it true you do not serve my gods, Neb said? And they said, we're not careful to answer the king in this matter. <laughs> we won't bend. We won't bow. If our God wants to, he can deliver us out of your hand. And if he doesn't, we still won't. Now there's a heart that's fixed trusting the Lord. Those three young men were not at all surprised to find themselves walking through the flames with the Son of God. And neither should I be. And neither should you be. If we are obedient to the Word of God. And so we have the prayerlessness, the pride, the priorities, the perversion. But praise God. Turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear. The promises... These are what we're hungering for in revival in our lives, in our church, in our home, in our community and through our nation. We want the promise of God that he will hear from heaven. If I regard iniquity in my heart, he will not hear me. God said to the children of Israel in the book of Isaiah, when you make many prayers, I will not hear you. I won't. I don't want your offerings. I don't want your sacrifice. I want your heart. I don't want your pretense. I want the reality. I want you to know that if you vow a vow, you defer not to pay it. I don't want you to honour me with your lips while your heart is far from me. If my people, if my people will, then will I. I will hear. I will forgive the greatest gift of God through his precious son, his forgiveness. Much to forgive, much to be forgiven. And here is this great, grand and glorious God in all of his majesty reaching out to sinful men. You say, oh preacher, you don't understand, I'm just so bad. Paul said he was the chief of sinners. So this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world. He said, and I'm the chief of sinners. Well, if the chief of sinners has been saved, get in line. If the worst of all sinful men has been saved, then there is grace and forgiveness available to you, my friend. And then you'd be one of the people of God to forgive their sin and will heal their land. I think in different terms, if you want to be national, yes, the land. But I use another word there occasionally, then will I heal their life. Heal their life. We started out with a land that was dry and devoured and diseased. It was destitute of any grace or mercy because of the, the sin of the people, the willfulness of the people. And yet here God stretches forth his hand and offers Forgiveness, cleansing, healing. Do you have this? Do you have this in your life? Do you know that you have Christ in your heart? Do you know that you're saved? Do you know where you're going to spend eternity? This is what God wants to do. But it's on his terms, not mine, not yours. You want God's best for your life, then you'll have to do it 
God's way, not man's way. You could go and join some big church somewhere. You could go to you know, one of those Sunday rock concerts and hide your pain in the noise. But sooner or later, sooner or later you'll find yourself sitting in a little room on your own. Then speaks the heart. The emptiness, the yearning, the burden, the pain of knowing I've not got what I need. I've got much, but I've not got what I really need. And what I need first and foremost is God's forgiveness. And that's only offered through his son, Jesus Christ. Are you a child of God? You trusting the shed blood of Christ for the cleansing and forgiveness of your sin? Is your relationship with God the most important thing in your life? The most important thing in life? Now, I have a wife. I have kids. I have four adult children. I have grandchildren. That's God's reward for not killing your own kids. I mean, I've lived, I've actually survived having four teenagers. I learned from teenagers why some animals eat their young. It's hard. But you can actually, it is survivable. But I made it very clear to my wife before we even walked an aisle, God is first in my life. I've had 23 years living for me and I'm done with me. I want God's blessing. I want God's best for my life. So if you're happy to be second place in my life, I'll say I do if you say I do. But if you won't let me have Christ first, don't say I do because I say I don't. End of story. I'm blessed to be married to a God-fearing woman who puts Christ first in her life. I'm blessed to have brothers and sisters and fellow laborers in Christ who live the same and enjoy the rich blessing of God. Oh, do they have big houses? Oh, no. I've got some friends in America that have died in the wool rednecks. They've got more dead cars and dead washing machines in their front yard than you and I have had hot dinners. But they love Christ with all their heart. And they hate sin and they love God. And they love his word. And nothing better for them to, when you go to visit these people, say, brother, come and sit down. Before we, before we have a cup of this sweet southern iced tea, let's have a time of prayer together. Haven't seen you for two years, let's pray. And they just want to cry out to God. You know, it's a, it, it is a humbling but a beautiful thing to sit down or kneel down with someone and listen to them praying to God for you. When I got saved February 18, 1979, after the pastor, Harold Davies, had opened his Bible and led me to Christ, showed me my need and how it could be met, we stood up and we opened the door of the storeroom and we looked out into this little girl guide hall where the church met. This was their first Sunday night meeting. We looked out in that hall and there were people all over the hall in little groups, standing, kneeling, sitting, praying. And I leaned over to this pastor that I'd only just met and I said, what are they doing? What are they doing? He said, they're praying for you. I choke on that every time. I never knew anybody could love me enough to pray for me, but then I never knew until then anybody could love me enough to die for me. 
and rise again from the dead to take away my sin and give this wretched man the grace and the mercy of God to know Christ, to live for Christ, to serve Christ. You want a revival? You give God what he wants. These are the requirements. We've already seen the root, the root of revival in First Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, very, very clear. Obey the word of God. Obey the word of God. Now here it is. This is what the word of God says. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I. Praise God. Then will I hear from heaven. The joy of knowing your prayer is heard. I need that for my kids, my grandkids. I need that for my friends, my loved ones. I need that for my fellow servants. I need that for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I need to know I'm being heard from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land and their life. Let's pray together, shall we? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the mercies of God that are our portion today that we should be able to meet together to sing your praise to worship you in the beauty of holiness and to preach the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the free salvation you offer to each and every one who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who would swing the heart's door widely open and bid him enter while he may. Our life is short and then eternity. And all the preparations for eternity for the soul of man are being made right here, right now. As we sit in your presence and under your word, Lord, I pray you would speak to hearts as only you can do and be glorified through the obedience to the gospel. Hell awaits those who obey not the gospel. We need to be an obedient people. We need to know Christ and Christ alone. So Lord, I pray this morning, speak to hearts for that one here who is struggling, for that one here who even now has a sense of guilt and shame, aware of their lost condition before a holy God that you would extend your mercy and your pardon to them through Christ today. Grant that they might from the heart believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. O Lord, for those of your children here today who are struggling in their walk with you and their obedience to you, wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? We have no joy in the Lord because... Our joy has been centred in self or in things or in others and not in you. So I pray, Father, that you would show yourself again as you are mighty to save, that you are also mighty to deliver your children from the bondage of sin and grant that we would obey as your spirit and your word speaks to our hearts today. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you, Pastor.